Hey, everybody. We're really excited to announce that we're here today with Olivia and Steve Abrams from TickMit. TickMit has been a small business that's been out for about the last four months. They've sold almost 10,000 TickMits. They've been featured on ABC's The View and Good Morning America. So I also want to announce that I'm here with my good friend, Ali Moresco, as the co-host today to interview Olivia and Steve. And we're going to kick it off with Steve. Steve, I, before we get into whatever brought Lyme to your mind, let's talk about what life was like as a child for you, Steve, way before Lyme was ever even a thought for you. Oh, that, that's a good question. I haven't figured it out. Obviously, ticks are not new to this planet, but I do not have any memory as a kid of ever being worried about it, seeing it, pulling one off me or hearing the word or anyone getting sick from an insect bite at that level. So this has come on in a very big way. It's kind of surprising. And I'm very curious as to the um, science behind that. And we're not going to have that conversation here because neither one of us is scientists. But you know, I wonder why it went from the halcyon days of summer camp in the 60s and early 70s to now everyone's afraid to go outside. Steve, where did you grow up? You mentioned that when you like life as a kid, you didn't really know much about it. But what part of the country did you grow up in? I grew up in Forest Hills, Queens. We didn't have a lot of uh, open space there. So it wasn't there. But I did go to camp in Connecticut and New Jersey. And you, know, you would think those are places that are hot spots now. Of course, Lyme is Lyme, Connecticut. So, you know, we'd think that would have been an issue. But I don't remember one instance of ever that coming coming into our lives. And now so you, never, you never found a tick biting you, Steve. I wouldn't even have known what a tick was then. It would have just been an insect bite at that point. And I didn't never heard of any of my friends getting a bite and then being debilitated. So let's, was, let's, let's mean go. It didn't exist. It didn't mean some kid didn't go home from camp and we didn't hear about it and he had a problem, but it just wasn't there. Or it was mislabeled, right? A lot of these conditions that were Lyme disease back in the day were probably mislabeled as something else or just chalked up to you know, hysteria, which we've heard in a lot of cases on this podcast, or other types of conditions that were inappropriately classified. So I think that more than, more than misclassified was the theme, the very big resistance from doctors to say that was an actual disease. So they would, they would label anything but. You know, there were ticks, obviously, tick bites give you multiple symptoms and any one of them could be siloed into something else and therefore you never get the full diagnosis. You know, I was telling you prior to this, I had a friend 30, 35 years ago who spent 15 years before she finally found a doctor that uttered the word Lyme. It was the first person that was willing to acknowledge that that was an actual disease and she might have it. Not to age ourselves here, Steve, but were you... Were you a child before Lyme was discovered? Because when Rich comes on as my co-host, he says, he goes, when he was a kid, there was a time where Lyme wasn't even a thing. It was just Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which was known before Lyme disease. So, you know, where were you in that spectrum? Well, I'm 65, so you do the math. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess, that did, did, were you aware of any other tick-borne illnesses like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which was known a little bit longer than Lyme? Never heard of it before uh, 20 years ago. Never. Okay. So I, Allie's going to walk through... Olivia's experience too as a child, but I think it's important to build out your story for Steve before we get into now you being a parent to Olivia and then what her knowledge was after, you know, what you went through in your life, right? So Steve, walk us through now when you first were aware of Lyme disease. How old were you and what put it on your radar? Well, what put it on my radar was Olivia. I mean, Olivia had a problem which seemed like an orthopedic problem. She was probably about eight years old and a ballet dancer. And she had a knee problem. We thought it was she twisted it or she sprained it. 
we were a few months into that uh, inquiry and we we're not getting anywhere with it until finally I uttered the words, we live in an area where there are ticks. What made and you say I that, thought, Steve? Why did you say that? Like, we'll put that I, on your brain. I don't know. It just hit me in that moment. We were really getting a little frustrated, uh, both with the lack of results or any, any kind of diagnosis. And it just came out of my mouth. I couldn't tell you that that was on my mind and I had to get it out when I got there for this particular visit. I just uttered it and the light bulb went off on the doctor's head. So we need to test for Lyme. And sure right. enough. Okay, so before we get, so it sounds like that was when Olivia tested positive. And now he's going to talk more about that. But I want to know more about you, Steve, first before we get there. So at this point, you're now married. I'm, assuming, I'm guessing you're married. And now are you still in Are you still in New York City? Where are you at this point? Yeah, we're in New York where we did, um, I think we had a country house then that we were yeah. at, you know. So we were in, in, in an environment where there were ticks. I don't remember ever pulling one off of her or seeing one on her. Mm-hmm. Certainly the um, what I've experienced both on myself and elsewhere is the classic bullseye is one way it manifests. There are many other ways it manifests. And if you're just looking for that, you're gonna miss it. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, when you say you were in the country, was this upstate New York? So you were living in New York City with a country home in upstate New York? Exactly. Yes. Okay. So for those that are listening and don't know, upstate New York has is a much more wooded rural area where there's a ton of ticks, right? A ton of a ton of shrubbery, right? And it's way different. It's not the concrete jungle like New York City, like you yeah, described really. earlier. It's more of a wooded area, right? Yeah, we had a hay farm, which we have another one, another another one now, and it's it's rife with deer. I mean, this is you know the country. You know, I have 15, 20 deer that I practically name at this point living on my property. Mm-hmm. You know, so I know where they are. And, yeah, and we would go, you know, horseback riding, or we would ride ATVs all around, or we've always had really big dogs. So we would take our dogs on long walks, and, um, you know, our my mom has always been someone who loved the outdoors and would get on her hunter boots and just go walking through the swamp. So that was really normal as a kid. So... Olivia, I, I, I have so many questions for you, and I know Allie does too. But Steve, before before Olivia had that issue while she was, you know, trying to dance and had knee issues, were did you have any health issues prior to Olivia's health issues? No. Well, yes. I mean, I've had a history of health issues, but the mostly orthopedics. Uh, subsequent to Olivia getting sick, I did have a major bacterial infection, which affected our whole family for many years. But uh, prior to that, no, I wasn't thinking about infections in that manner. It wasn't high on my radar. I wonder though, you said you had a bacterial infection that impacted your whole family. Oftentimes illnesses like that that are severe can weaken us and make us more susceptible to getting even sicker when we get Lyme disease, right? So was that something timing-wise that you think could have impacted Olivia's experience with her tick bite and her knee pain? Or do you think that uh, that may not be the case? It was too drawn out. A little bit. You probably got sick a little while after I did, right? A little bit, but I don't think there's any relationship to those two diseases or those issues. Okay. It's completely siloed. Gotcha. So Steve, we we went through your background. Now, Allie, if you can jump in and talk to Olivia, I'm dying to know if Olivia learned anything about Lyme and tick-borne illnesses, but I'm, I'm anxious that the answer is going to be no, because Steve still didn't know at this point, right? Steve found out from Olivia. So if you can help us, Allie, walk through uh, Olivia's experience, unfortunately, as a young child, with this knee pain and her diagnosis. Yeah, Olivia, I'd love to know a little bit about um, before, I guess, because I know your dad said that your knee pain started at age eight. So what was life like for you before that pain started? 
I mean, I, it's very hard before the age of eight to remember, you know, how old you are when what happened. But to my knowledge, I, you know, I grew up in New York City as well, um, was, you know, in a concrete jungle most of the time, um, was super athletic. I would play basketball two or three times a week growing up and was always the one roughhousing in PE class. Um, and I think when I was about seven or eight years old is when I started going to day camps in the summer, we would swim in the lake, we would do arts and crafts. And no one ever really said anything about ticks to me. I've always been one of those people who is beloved by mosquitoes. So that was more my concern at the time. I feel um, you on that. Until, I feel you. Yeah, but, but until I actually got a tick and was really sick, and I don't even think I realized what uh, the ticks relation to Lyme disease was until I got a lot older and could understand it. Because, you know, when you're eight years old, yeah. you're sick, you're sick. It doesn't matter where it's come from. You just want to feel better. Um, yeah. But yeah, up and up until I had Lyme, I was never told at camp to be careful of ticks. Mm. I wore bug spray, but that was not for ticks. That was for mosquitoes. Yeah, no, the lack of awareness is um, just astounding. Even when I don't know how old you are. I'm, I just turned 30. But um, even growing up, I mean, you know, I feel like the only reason that my parents were decently tick aware was because we're originally from the East Coast. And my mom grew up in Connecticut, you know, where it's it's such a big thing and parents are constantly pulling ticks off of you and looking for bullseyes and all that stuff. Um, so I guess if you can remember after the age of eight, when you started having this knee pain and you felt terrible and you didn't know why, like, what was that like for you? What was going through your head or how did that change your life? Yeah, I don't really have as strong of a memory of, you know, thinking that I had hurt myself in ballet class. I definitely think that I was probably having a, di a difficult time just in ballet class, but um, until my parents really brought to my attention that something was wrong, I didn't really know. And we started going to doctors. I had had a really bad experience when I was even younger with needles. So getting me to do blood work was absolutely a nightmare. They would have to lie to me about where we going in the car. Oh no. <laughs> And that really did not help my me get over my fear of needles for a long time. Um, I have memories of, you know, getting x-rays and people telling me to try to bend my knee and me basically just screaming and telling my mom I wouldn't do it. Um, and having to, you know, I think I missed about two weeks of school at one point because we weren't sure what was mm -hmm. wrong. I was having trouble walking and even for a long time after we knew it was wrong, I would have to be the one to sit out of basically every PE class. And for me, that was torture. Yeah. And I would tell you, yeah. as, a, as a parent, having a child who has a mystery illness and yeah. not able to get to the bottom of it is very frustrating and uh, scary. Yeah. Oh, I hear. I mean, I was much older when I got sick. I was about 20. But um, I hear that same thing from my parents, that it just is like the most distressing thing you can imagine as a parent. So I, you know, I can't imagine what that's like. And I'd be curious to know, Steve, I know you had mentioned earlier, you were the one who had asked the doctor about Lyme and tick-borne diseases. And when you asked the doctor if Olivia could be tested, what was, were they open to it? Like, what was their immediate response to you? Well, actually, I didn't ask them if she could be tested. I mentioned that we live in an area that has ticks. And yeah. As I said that, he said, then we have to test. Now- yeah. Every time I'm at the doctor for anything, one of the first things I tell them is I'm in an area that has ticks. Yeah. I want to put that right out there immediately. So that becomes on the forefront of where they're thinking so they can eliminate that. 
I think that's very important for people to, to do when they go to the doctor, if you live in these areas, whether you've had it or not. Absolutely. I'm just curious because I know, you know, for myself, my GP, when I first presented with like cold and flu-like symptoms, they refused to test me for Lyme. And I hear that echoed again and again and again through the community. So I was curious if you had to advocate for it at all or if they were open to it, but it sounds like they were open to exploring it, which was great. Um, And Olivia, going back to your joint pain, is that something you still deal with to this day or has it dissipated? Yeah, it is something I still deal with. I think it's obviously significantly better from when I was a kid. Good. I've gone in and out of physical therapy over my life. Um, and I am very mm-hmm. careful about staying strong. I played volleyball, mm-hmm. um, middle school through college. Um, so That's just great. taking care of myself athletically is really important for my knee pain. But I can definitely tell, you know, when I've walked over 10,000 steps a few days in a row, or I go too hard on the bike, whatever it is, that is usually the first part of my body that hurts. And I'll massage it in certain techniques that I've learned or do icy hot or, um, you know, try certain types of stretches just to make sure that I have all the other parts that are connected to my knee loose as well. Um, But it is something I deal with. Uh, Thankfully, it's not dissipating in any way and it doesn't affect me every single day, but uh, it, it is more of an annoyance than anything. Are there any other, or are there any other symptoms that you experience still like on a day-to-day basis or have most of those dissipated too? I don't think I ever really had other symptoms. I I really have a very specific like arthritis. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I think I went to a few months of physical therapy and just slowly over my life, it's gotten better um, as, as long as I treat myself right. Um, yeah, thankfully that was the only experience I ever had. And I don't know the science enough to know, but it just seems to be that Lyme and the diseases associated uh, attack weakness. Mm-hmm. It goes right to the place that's already having an issue. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because it's, you know, it impacts me differently than it impacts you, than it impacts somebody else. It's so personalized. Um, yeah, it's just wild how it happens. Um but I would assume, and I would hope that you're, you know, feeling at least decently okay now, because as, you know, as a business owner myself, I know how much goes into that, um, let alone something like TickMit and like a consumer packaged good. There's a lot of time and a lot of effort that goes into it. So it's, it's funny because typically at this point in the podcast, we would talk about, um, you know, how your disease possibly like negatively impacted your dreams and your goals and your hopes and your desires. But um, in this case for you, I guess, similar as it did for me, I, I would not wish this disease upon anybody, but I genuinely feel like it led me to my true passion, you know, in helping others through what I do for work. And I would assume it's the same for you with Tickmet. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, while my Lyme didn't impact my, you know, hopes and goals and dreams, I think growing up, I always just wanted to be like my dad and be an entrepreneur and watching him be really sick from a different kind of illness is like, oh, your role model in your career Mm -hmm. and also your father who you, you know, aspire to eventually partner with and work with is Mm -hmm. deadly ill. 
And so mm -hmm. while it wasn't my disease that affected me, I was very scared multiple times of losing my dad or him not being able to work in the way that I wanted to work with him or be able to learn from him. So um, that is something else that I think I'm grateful for today and take with me when we're working together. And that's why I let you do all the work. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say I blame you there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> She's great. A proud papa. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Matt, I'm throwing it back to you for a little bit because I feel like I'm talking too much. No, I'm loving I'm loving this. So I do have so many questions, but I was trying to be patient and wait, which is not very unlike me, Ali. I'm surprised I've been able to control myself this long. But <laughs> Olivia, tell us about though. I mean, obviously it did have an impact on you, not as maybe severely as it could have. But walk us through when you finally got diagnosed. I know you were eight, so maybe Steve, you can help answer this question. What did you do for treatment at that time? At that time, it was a three-week protocol of doxy. And you know, my experience over the last geez, 16 years since she had that is the protocols have keep changing. First, it was, you know, you got the 24-hour 500 milligram prophylactic dose. Then it used to be 10 days of doxy. Then it became three weeks of doxy. Then I've heard 28 days of doxy. So I'm not sure anymore what's the right protocol. I know for me, the few times that I've been diagnosed with it, you know, 10 day course of doxy has taken care of it. Yeah. But in addition to that, I did do a lot of physical therapy. Yeah. Okay. Did, did you feel better though? I mean, do you remember Olivia? Do you remember being sick at eight? Do you remember getting diagnosed? Or is that something that's just too long ago? You're not, you don't really recall though, at that time of your life. I don't remember diagnosis. I remember um, a lot of trying to figure out what was wrong, mostly the things that scared me. So getting blood work done or getting x-rays done that were super painful and have a couple of memories of, you know, being in bed and being like, mom, can I go to school today? And she's like, you can't because you can't walk and we don't know why. Um, and just, you know, times of sitting out of PE class. I remember times of being in physical therapy because I always loved my physical therapist and he would make me laugh when I was in a lot of pain. So that was helpful. Um, but I, I don't remember anyone ever saying to me, you have Lyme. I think until I was 12 or 13, I, I didn't know that I had that. And I would say to my dad, Hey, wasn't really sick when I was in first grade. He'd be like, yeah. I'd be like, why was that? And say, oh, you had Lyme disease. And he would have to explain to me what that was. So it wasn't until much later. And um, when I was, I guess, in remission of some sort and not having nearly as many uh, painful moments as I did then until I, I knew what had actually been wrong years ago. And, and then, interestingly enough, it didn't present with any other symptoms. It was very targeted into that one knee. So we, there was no other way that we could see it. You know, that's why it was so specific to looking at it orthopedically, because there was nothing else going on. Yeah, now... I am curious, though, as, as an eight-year-old and then a 12-year-old and as you're getting older, when you had to go to physical therapy, that's not, you know, most kids that are eight and 10 and 12 aren't going to physical therapy. So, Olivia, when you think back, do you, do you ever think like, hey, why, why am I going to physical therapy? Why am I in pain, right? What was that like as a kid having that pain and having to go to physical therapy in contrast to looking at your peers who weren't having that kind of experience at that time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's definitely isolating in, in some capacity. 
Um, thankfully, I went to a really small school where everyone was very tight knit. I'm sure it was, you know, said in class, like Olivia has been sick for the last couple of weeks. You know, this is why she's not here. This is why she's leaving early. So um, no one ever really questioned me about it that I remember. Um, I also had, you know, other friends in class who had had health issues growing up or, you know, had allergies. And when you're a kid and you have weird things, you kind of wear it as a badge of honor. It's like something that makes you interesting. Um, so until I was older and realized, oh, you know, I shouldn't have had to go through something like that um, is is when I became aware of like how unique this particular situation was, at least Um as an eight-year-old. But I think also growing up, once I got into middle school and high school, people started becoming a little bit more aware of what Lyme disease was. I had other friends who spent time in upstate New York or in Long Island. And, and when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18, it was something that was more on everyone's radar. And a lot of our listeners are going to think and want to know the answer to this question. So you mentioned earlier, Olivia, that after doing three, three weeks of antibiotics, you did physical therapy and then you hit a point where I think you said around when you were 12 maybe 14 where you felt like you were in remission and the pain has just had subsided was it was there anything else you did besides a pretty consistent course of physical therapy and the the antibiotics that helped you get to that stage of remission where you weren't experiencing any pain anymore you know understanding that if you push yourself now it comes back a little bit but what got you to that point of feeling like you were pretty level I'd say it was a lot sooner than, you know, 12 or 13 till I felt like I was feeling better. Um, from my perspective, as soon as I, as soon as I was allowed to be back in PE class, I was better. Um, and you know, then as I was getting older and, you know, I would have knee, knee pain once in a while and I wouldn't remember why I had had that in the first place. And then I would have to ask my dad, Hey, my knee hurts. Like, why is this? Do I need to go to physical therapy? Cause that's what I associated with my knee pain. And he would say, you know, you have Lyme disease and that will be in your system for the rest of your life. And it's very possible that you'll deal with, you know, instances here and there um, where you feel that pain again. But I always was very athletic and, you know, was playing volleyball six days a week at some points. And um, I think that in certain parts of my life, because I was working out so much, um, my leg or my knee would be in a strong place and I would totally forget that I had ever had Lyme disease. And then it will go back to, you know, a time where I'm working five days a week, you know, nine to seven, nine to eight, and I'm not working out as much. And, you know, then overusage becomes a problem. So Steve, a lot of people, a lot of doctors really don't recognize the fact that Lyme can persist, meaning that after antibiotics that it will persist in your system, they think it's eradicated and it's not in your body anymore. So it sounds like you were educated after Olivia's diagnosis that the Lyme will remain in her, you know, in perpetuity, you know, basically indefinitely in her system. And she may have flare ups here and there. Is that something that you're, that the doctor at the time shared with you? What, what that, how did you come to that conclusion? Cause that's rare to hear that from people. I didn't come to that conclusion. It was told to me because I have a great, I had a great primary care physician and I finally got my own, you know, Lyme disease and we tested and we got a baseline in my blood. And he was very clear to me, my doctor, that this is going to be with you forever. And if you get it again, we're going to have to do another blood test and get another baseline so we can see where you are. I've had about four or five of those at this point, um, baselines. Um, but I don't have, I don't feel any residual issues to the Lyme I've had. They've always been caught fairly quickly. 
uh, you know, I'm, I am a big uh, believer in the prophylactic dose, and I have availed myself of that whenever I've taken a tick off me. But occasionally, I've missed it or I didn't realize it. Uh, one time when I got it pretty bad, it looked like heat rash. That's why I was saying about the bullseye. You know, if you look just for that, you're not going to catch it all the time. So I had what I thought was heat rash over my chest and my, you know, torso. It turned out to be Lyme. Uh, that was probably the, the longer, the biggest one I had. And it was probably a few weeks before we diagnosed it. But I don't feel any residual real issues from it. So, Steve, you, you've had Lyme about four or five times. So it seems. <laughs> and did you have a rash each of those times? Is that how you knew you had it? Was it a rash that presented that brought you to your doctor? How did you know so quickly? That's, again, kudos to you. It's, I mean, it took me years to figure out I had Lyme disease, right? Yeah. Years and years. Well, I think it's much more prominent now and much more in everyone's face, both from the social media, from the media in general. I think it's on everyone's radar. So it's a very different conversation now. Um, I, I think even doctors would ask you, are you in a place where they have ticks? You know, if there's a proactive doctor. Um, no, I, I've had the classic bullseye and that's very easy to say, oh, I think I have it and go get tested. I've never taken a tick and sent it to a lab. <laughs> so, you know, I just pull them off and flush them and then go to the doctor. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about co-infections, right? You know, we've talked about Lyme a lot. Has your primary care doctor, who seems very up to date with this stuff, do you also get tested for co-infections like, you know, Babesia, Anaplasma, or Lichia, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever? Are they doing a full panel for you to check the whole spectrum? He's a very, very detailed doctor, and it's always a full panel. And every time I've gotten it, it has been Lyme itself. So tell us about your, your friend, Steve, I don't, I don't remember the name of the individual you mentioned earlier, but you said that your friend had Lyme disease for quite a while, and it really had a significant impact on that person's life. Can you share with us, you know, how, this was a you friend know, of how that went? About, she was about 30 years old. Uh, this is going back 30 years, by the way. This is before anyone ever mentioned the word Lyme. So she had gotten sick. She was deteriorating. She was actually slowly getting crippled, and no one had a diagnosis. No one could figure it out. It was, oh, you're tired, you have Epstein-Barr. Oh, you have uh, pain, you've got something else. It was literally 15 years into it before anyone even mentioned, I think you might have Lyme or that Lyme was even a possibility. By that point, she's on, anti you know, she's on, you know, what do you call it? Intravenous antibiotic mm -hmm. protocols. And um, at that point, she was way too gone. It was then a, a slow death. She ended up being crippled and bedridden and then slowly died and passed away, leaving a, a teenager. Horrible. Okay. I'm sorry. So talk to us about, you mentioned, Steve, the prophylactic, if you have, if you, so I guess the question I have is we, we think a lot about whether, you know, most people listening to this podcast have Lyme disease, have been impacted by Lyme disease, but the risk of reinfection is real. I mean, I've been, re I've been reinfected. You know, we know you told us you've both been reinfected. If you're reinfected with a lot, well, if you're bit by a tick, do you think, or is, is it your recommendation and your doctor's recommendation that you take a prophylactic dose of antibiotic just if you have a tick bite or only if you think you have a bullseye rash and you have an actual infection? Like where, where do you land in that spectrum? The spectrum is you pull one off of you that's already attached you go right to the prophylactic dose. You don't wait for any other symptoms because by the time you're getting the symptoms, you're already behind the eight ball on the dose. My, the recommended dose to me 
from my doctor was 500 milligrams in 24 hours, whether it's 100 milligram pills or two 250s, but to make sure you get that. I've stuck by that. And uh, the few times, you know, the last few times I've pulled ticks off me, uh, and that, by the way, they might not have had disease, but I haven't gotten anything either. So I'm going to stick with that protocol. But also something that we haven't really touched on yet is that we've always had dogs and our dog even this summer got a bout, a bout of Lyme disease. And that's something that's much harder to catch. That's not something that you can mm-hmm. uh, be necessarily um, on top of, because True. even if you do find a tick on them and it has latched, I'm not really sure what our vet would have recommended. Well, you're not getting a bullseye on your dog. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and yeah, he has, I, that's a good question. I haven't heard to give the dog a 24-hour dose. Yeah, but, <laughs> but that might, might, be, might be something I should try. And and by the way, that's the way tick mitt was invented by because we had dogs. And, well, and, uh, oh, go ahead, Allie. No, I'd okay. say I have an in- interesting story that you guys will probably well not like, but it shows the effectiveness of the tick mitt. Um, So obviously I have a big standard poodle. My parents have two standard poodles and we all relocated to Tennessee from Chicago about two years ago. Um, My husband and I still live closer to the city. We're about four minutes from downtown Nashville. My parents live out in Belmede, which is, um, you know, like you have an acre of property. There's lots of trees, lots of bugs, so on and so forth. And for the first time ever, Um, my parents started pulling ticks off of their dog. None, thankfully, that had latched like up until a certain point. But um, so they have two big standard poodles and um, they, you know, oh, I, when I got a tick mitt for myself, I got one for them. And my parents got into the rhythm of like, every time the dogs came inside, they would wipe them down with tick mitt. And there was one day my grandma was watching the dogs and, you know, she's in her eighties and obviously did not use the tick mitt. Literally the one time our, one of my parents' dogs um, got bit by a tick and contracted ehrlichiosis and got very, very sick. And thank God he was fine. Um, But literally the one time that the tick mitt was not used was the time that they had a tick that latched onto one of the dogs um, onto his chest and he got really, really sick. But so it does happen. And it was interesting because they, thank God when um, my mom took him to the vet because he was like lethargic and just being like not himself, um, the vet thought he had a tick-borne disease and I don't know what they put him on, but they put him on a really, really strong dose of something. And thank God they did because I guess with their lichiosis and dogs, it could present as like blood blisters. And within 48 hours, he had blood blisters all over his body. Um, but because he was treated like quickly, he was fine. So it's just wild how it impacts people and dogs and animals and yeah, all and of the, the things. But... I'm sorry. No, it's just that was the last thing I was going to say. With, with the dogs, I mean, obviously you're not seeing a rash, you're not seeing a bullseye per se. Um, mm-hmm. But you can see very clearly they're limping, they're mm-hmm. lethargic, it'll come yeah. out in an elbow or a knee and you start to mm-hmm. see it and it's laying around, it becomes very, very noticeable. And the last yeah. time our dog got it this summer, she was put on a 30 day protocol, which yeah. I thought was a little overkill, but uh, you know, we stuck it out. And then if you're on yeah. a 30 day protocol, you're also giving them probiotics, mm-hmm. you know, that's yeah. uh, issue. Yeah, Steve, yeah. let's talk about that because you know, Dr. Cameron, he's from upstate New York as well. Nope. He's a, a, a Lyme medical doctor. He's part of ILADS, the International Lyme mm-hmm. and Associated Disease Society. 
And we had him on this podcast, Doctor. We've had, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of these Lyme literate specialists come on, including Dr. Horowitz mm-hmm. in upstate New York as well. And they, they actually did a study, right? You mentioned that 30 days seemed like a lot. And to me, it did at first as well. And I'm, I just pulled up the ILADS did a study, and this is a, a published, you know, N- National Institute of Health study. And it says that their recommendation, now I'm pulling it up just so I can share it with you, is that if you have a positive Lyme disease case, you have a rash, right? Like you did, Steve, or like these, like the dogs that are that are exhibiting symptoms of being lethargic and limping and having the, the, the leg symptoms, that if you have a rash or you have a positive infection, that ILADS, the International Lyme Associated Disease Society, recommends that patients have between four to six weeks of doxycycline, amoxicillin, or cefuroxime, which I'm not pronouncing properly. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because the life cycle of Lyme disease is about four weeks. So they want you to hit that life cycle and go a little bit over it to ensure that if it's reproducing, you, you're able to get it all throughout its life cycle, right? And and you talk, and I, 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 I had to Google it because I remember this from Dr. Cameron. He also notes that with a single dose of doxycycline that, yeah, you know, the CDC published that study that the single dose of doxycycline can be very helpful in curbing or preventing an infection if you're bit by a tick. But the one downside Cameron warns against is if you're going to use the prophylactic dose, which has value, be careful because it may result in a higher level of a false negative test, cool. meaning you could be infected. And the line testing is so inaccurate to begin with, anywhere between 30 to 50%, you know, inaccurate, I'm sorry, accurate, it could make those odds even less. So I think like there's trade-offs, right? You you probably prevented yourself from getting sick with Lyme disease, but mm-hmm. if you will, if you did get infected, you know, despite that prophylactic treatment, the testing would have been even less accurate than it would have been if you didn't take the doxycycline, right? And so it's, there's this, all these different facts that are out there, which gets to our point. If you can get the tick before it bites you using the tick mitt, what are you doing, right? Why not use a tick mitt? Why not check for ticks when you come in from the woods? Why not check your dog when he's coming in, right? Or when she's coming in? Because you don't have to worry about any of this if you can prevent the tick from biting you, which is what your product does so well. So there's so many intricacies and I can go on. I won't because it's really geeky and sciencey about this eyelid study. But the more you read, the more you're like, why, if I don't do tick checks and I'm not using a product like a tick mitt, what am I doing, right? I mean, that's that's how I yeah. look at this. Yeah, I, I understand that. But, you know, I would say that if you're out for your kid or even me, you know, I like to do work in the yard. And our yard is a very, very large property where I've got chainsaws and I'm moving shit around, moving stuff around. And, um, you know, I'm out there for four hours. If I got bit the first hour, mm-hmm. I would know it. It's not like every hour I'm you know, taking, holding my shirt up and my pants down and taking a look. So, you know, you know, when you come home after four or five hours of playing outside with your kid or otherwise, you know, there's a good chance that you could be bit and uh, you can't stay on top of that fully. No. You know? It's really be as careful as you can. But I want to counter the tick mitt will significantly increase your odds to not get bit or infected. But I think what you're saying, Steve, is, and I couldn't agree more, you still want to do tick checks beyond that because if the tick is biting you, the tick mitt's not going to remove the tick if it's latched on or biting you at that point. And if you're out in the yard for a couple hours, you or your pet, it the tick mitt's not going to get off. It's biting you, but it will get off any ticks that are that are still crawling on you, right? And I think and that's, that's really what I, do now. what I do now is I bring my tick mitt with me, and about every half hour, forty five minutes, I just give myself a wipe down. I pull if I'm wearing long pants, I pull them up to about my calf, just make sure. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of times I've missed a tick and gotten bit it's behind my knee mm-hmm. so i'm doing yard work they get up there you don't feel it it's mm-hmm. behind my knee they get home and i start to itch and then i say oh there it is but lately i've been really bringing it with me 
wiping the dog down, wiping myself down as I'm going through my day. It's a good line of defense to yeah, not sure. get bit, but checks are still necessary is what I'm hearing. And Allie, you use it too, right? I mean, I've seen yeah, you, I, I know we've talked about it. You use it as well. So it's, you know, I think uh, not only on your, on your animals, but yourself, right? Even in, yeah. Oh yeah. I use it on myself and I use it on scout um, and my husband uses it, but we, you know, even though we're basically in the city of Nashville, you know, we have a front yard, I have a big garden, we have a lot of plants. Um, and I know this from living in Chicago and having one of my very good friends um, and just through all of like my fundraising and stuff through the tick-borne disease community that people get bitten cities all the time. You know, one of my very good friends is, um, a very well-known LLMD in the city of Chicago. And um, it was last summer in the month of May alone, she had six acute tick bites come in just from people sitting at Chicago restaurants. And about a month ago, there was a journalist that I knew that was visiting um, Nashville. She was staying at the one hotel downtown, middle of the city, con complete concrete jungle. And um, she was with her friend who got bit on the back of the neck sitting outside at the rooftop bar. So I just feel like you never know. And it's, it's better to be safe than sorry, you know? So. Yeah, I mean, I think that something that both of us have learned a lot about Lyme disease and tick-borne illnesses and ticks in general from working on TickMIT is how widespread it is. I think that yeah. there's a very big misconception that it's only in the Northeast, maybe a little bit in the Midwest. And yeah. since we've been doing this, we've had friends and orders um, from, you know, Miami or mm -hmm. Austin or Nashville. So many people mm -hmm. reach out to us about wanting to get them in Canada, which we're trying to do as soon as possible. But um, I, I don't think I realized how many states deal with this at that level. You know, I'm getting as many orders in the Northeast as I'm getting in Texas and Southern California, which I never thought would be a thing. Yeah. I, well, we, I think what we're finding out is, look, I have dogs. They come to the city. They're in a, they don't go to dog parks, but if you have, uh, you're in the Hamptons, your dog gets a few ticks, they come in, they sniff some other dog, that dog now has it. That dog's never been in the country, but it has a tick now. And, you know, it comes into the inner city at this point. Uh, it's people coming back, campers, hikers, hunters, or dogs. You're going to bring it back with you. I mean, they're they're small. We can't find them all. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I'm dying to know, though, because, you know, we're, we're I feel like we're, we're, I'm, 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 I'm skipping a step. I'm so excited to talk about how effective the TICMIT is in use and Allie's used it, right? You guys have used it and it's mm -hmm. so cool. It's, it's a really help, cool preventative tool, but let's walk it back. What is the TICMIT, right? I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, people like, like I don't even understand it. What is it, a glove that I, how did it, how did it take a tick off me? Like, so what is it and how does it work? Can you kind of break it down for us at a simple level? Well, we're going to start with how we invented it because, you know, that's we, what I want to hear. Well, as Olivia was saying, we have big dogs. When Olivia was born, we had mm -hmm. Rottweilers. Um, we ended up with a Ridgeback, the beautiful dog, and Cane Corsos, Mastiffs. And, you know, the Corsos are 140, 150 pounds. There's a lot of real estate for ticks to set up shop. Granted, I was an only child, so we spent as much attention on me as we did our dogs. And they were basically my siblings. So I was playing with Love them <laughs> and other kids my age. And anyway, you know, when we got the Mastiffs, Mastiffs drool. 
So yes. I picked up some, you know, a bag of car chamois, blue car chamois, and I, we'd keep them around the house. We call them the blue towels. And as soon as the dog drank something, everyone would grab a blue towel and wipe them down. And I, in the country, and I'm wiping his muzzle, and I look at it, and it's picking up ticks. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm a business guy, so I'm looking at that. I'm going, oh, that's a business. But at the time, I owned another business called Magnolia Bakery in uh, New York. And I didn't have really the wherewithal to start another business. But it was always in the back of my mind that that would be a business. So when the time came, about five years ago, we incorporated that name. And that was really it. I still had Magnolia. But three and a half years ago, I started to put that for sale and look at what the future was gonna be for myself. And of course, with Olivia coming out of college and wanting to be an entrepreneur, and us wanting to do something together, this made perfect sense. But you can't just take a car chamois and fold it up and say, that's admit, that doesn't really work. There's so many details that have to be thought through uh, on a lot of levels. I'm not gonna get into every one of them now, but what we did, it turns out that my assistant for 20 years, it turns out her best friend, worked at a college in Connecticut and was a tick scientist. I mean, you can't get more serendipitous than that. And uh, we ended up hiring a product engineer, working with a factory in China, having the product engineer do specifications that were very tight, having the factory do that, and then being able to test the product in lab conditions to make sure that it worked. As a matter of fact, the tick scientists used a different type of product in the forest to pick up ticks, which was a felt. And we went down a few roads to look at different fabrics because if they're using that, we thought maybe that had more efficacy, it was more efficient, and we could get a better product with the best fabric. And we really found that the microfiber at the right loop length, uh, produced the right way with the right specs, tight, where it's, uh, you know, where the specifications are laid out and the factories following them, and we can have you know consistency that we found a product that we felt was efficient in many ways because it's not just efficient in picking them up; it has to be efficient in how you find them on it and get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the having the dryer bag in there, you don't have to necessarily mm-hmm. search; just throw it in the dryer bag, throw it in the dryer for ten minutes, and it kills them. But um, you know, the tick mitt we found also is really good for medium size, medium length hair on the dogs and mm-hmm. uh, fur and uh, tight fur, but we're inventing another product called Tick Glove right now, which would be good for getting into much thicker hair. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the dogs that are really have an undercoat, you know, I know through my dogs that some of them, I gotta feel around still, no matter how much mm-hmm. I pick it up, I feel around. I also know that I have to wipe it a few times because mm-hmm. ticks can end up on the back or the hind. They're always going to move up towards the neck and the ears. And mm-hmm. that might take them a little time to get there too. They don't always attach right away. They're always finding a, the right place. So after I do a wipe down, I always do a second wipe down about 15 minutes later. And then also use my fingers because you know the glove's not going to get everything. So we just want to be doubly sure that we're being as efficient as possible when we're doing this product. And this product. Sorry, go ahead. That's it. I was just going to say, I'm so glad you talked about the process of bringing TickMit to market because I think most people don't realize how much actually goes into like the commercialization. You don't just snap your fingers and it's there. 
And it's funny because that's something that I hear consistently from a lot of people in the Lyme community when it comes to kind of tick or like tick-borne disease or Lyme-related brands is like they want something yesterday, right? And in reality, there's just so much that goes into it um, to be able to do this. And ultimately, you know, it is for the betterment of the community. So I'm grateful. And it's even interesting listening to you talk about it and talk about, um, you know, the mitt and how it works and the best way to use it. And just to put like a, well, not a literal bug in your ear, but I almost wonder if someday there's like a partnership with somebody like Igenix where they offer tick testing or um, like a, the government or something like that for surveillance, because it would kind of be like the perfect vehicle for it, you know, and that is so, so underfunded. Um, it's like, if you're already using the mitt and catching all of these ticks, you know, all over the country, it would be so interesting to surveil them and actually see what they have for medical doctors and researchers. So anyway, it like gets my brain idea. going. I like that. Yeah. And we're in the process of developing a tick kit, which might have a awesome. number of tools in it as we go along and um, you know, that might be something we want to work with a lab or a study uh, and then some people can join that. So that might be something in the future that we can work with. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a vector ecologist, Dr. Holly Tootin at University of Illinois. And it's really, really interesting because um, she does surveillance of vector borne diseases, so ticks and mosquitoes in the state of Illinois. and um, this was back in um, 2019, so right before COVID, when they pulled, you know, a lot of funding. If you looked at the Illinois government budget, there was only $80,000 allocated for tick and vector-borne surveillance. So it's not even enough, you know, to have a team and actually like perform the research adequately. So she mostly um, was relying on grant money for that, but it's already such an underfunded area in, you know, state-to-state -state government budgets that if there was a, a privately held solution to it, um, kind of like catching the ticks with TickMit and then partnering with a lab like Igenix or something of that nature, I think that would do a lot of good. So anyway, $80,000, I'm sure, and you yeah. know this better than me, uh, have there been studies done on lost work hours due to tick-borne illnesses? I mean, when you add that up, I'm sure $80,000, looks like very little money to what you're actually yeah. in productivity yeah. and healthcare costs. Yeah, if you, um, Center for Lyme Action is a really fantastic resource um, for accurate info as far as like true hard and fast statistics and research on how it impacts people um, and how it impacts, um, you know, the workforce and, and lost time, lost revenue. Uh, medical dollars, things of that nature. Um, and I wish that I could remember if there's also a really, really staggering statistic on how much money the government puts into um, research on malaria versus tick-borne yes. illness, you know, something that like, it was in like a year, we had six cases of it or something. Um, so it's interesting, but Center for Lyme Action and LymeDisease.org both have um, factual info on those topics. So even for listeners, I, I would go look and educate yourself because it's it's good knowledge to be equipped with. Yeah, Ali, I want to jump in. We have, actually, it's very timely because our next podcast interview is coming right after this one is going to be Bonnie Crater, who is the, the founder of ah. Center for Lime Action. So she's going to be the next one coming out after this podcast launches. We're actually interviewing her on Wednesday this week. So that's, that's very oh timely. And we've had Dorothy Leland on from LimeZ.org. And I was mm -hmm. thinking the same thing that 
you know, they, Lorraine Johnston, who is the head of my Lyme data would be, I think a good partner because mm -hmm. she is, she actually just published a study for Lyme that was about the diversity of ticks and, mm -hmm. and people that Lyme impacts and gender specifically mm -hmm. and, you know, sex and race and et cetera. And, and I think that's a really good coupling of, of, you know, finding the ticks, but then categorizing the ticks and then what happens to the people that maybe were bit by a tick, right. And kind of taking it full circle. So, mm -hmm. But I do want to ask, because Steve, you were talking about the, you know, the process, right? And you also mentioned the color so you can see the tick. So is the color of the tick mitt a certain color so the tick will pop more? So when you visually look at it, you see the tick on the mitt. Is that is that actually a factor that went into creating this, this product? Of course. I mean, if you can't find the, like, not everyone, I'm, I'm not afraid of bugs. So for me, you know, I just pick them off the dog. I pick them off the mitt. I throw them in the you know, down the drain or back into the forest. But I understand the visceral fear of even seeing them or touching them, which is why we have the dryer bag. Um, I think that it really depends on uh, the color itself in order to see the ticks. We've done a lot of different testings of colors in order to figure out the initial ones that we started with, which was like very light gray and yellow, kind of like a warning sign. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that just making sure that the color is not too dark where you can see the ticks on them uh, is what mm -hmm. we're going for. But as we mentioned earlier, sometimes ticks can be uh, they can't be seen with the naked eye. And so yeah. uh, no matter what color the mitt is, it's not going to matter. And I'd say, you know, almost every time I use my tick mitt, you, you should be putting it in the dryer bag and throwing it in the dryer because it's very possible that there are ticks on there that you just can't really see. It's a very good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how does that work though? So if I'm, if I have this tick mitt and I'm putting it on, you know, doing a pass on my arm or I'm doing a pass on my dog and a tick gets caught up in it, and then I do another pass because, right, you guys mentioned that you, you want to go do a couple of passes, the full body of the dog, the full body of the human. Once the tick is caught up on the mitt, whatever the material is on, on the outside, is it going to fall back off? Like, is it sticking to it? How does that work? I'm seeing like I'm visualizing this and I'm visualizing like a tick falling off almost. So is, is it sticking? How does that how does that, you know, science, you don't have to get too geeky, geek out on us. But like, how does that work, you know? I think that the way that we've designed the fabric has made it very similar to working like Velcro. So, you know, the ticks kind of get stuck in the mitt, like pieces of Velcro get stuck together. And, you know, once the tick is on there, it, you know, it'll, it can crawl around, crawl all over the mitt, but that's why you have the mesh dryer bag. So even if you're not home, you can put it in there, take it with you. If you know, are at a soccer game or you're at the golf course or you're hiking and, put it back into the dryer bag and then bring it home with you if you want to kill it that way. Um, but I, I think that the mesh dryer bag was really important in us creating Tickman and a lot of people since we released the product were surprised that, you know, we or other people in the Lyme disease community are aware that ticks can be killed by heat. I think a lot of people are under the assumption that, you know, you can always just throw them into the water and they'll die or that, you know, alcohol is really the only way to get rid of them. But I think that heat is a very easy option um, when you have access to, you know, a dryer or um, even I, I feel like a hair dryer would work too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I had to have a fun story because Rich froze a tick once that bit him. I think it was just this, uh, <laughs> but, the, but this, I'm pretty sure it was this summer. And he put it in the freezer and then he took it back and he was mailing it away to get tested. So he takes it out after having it in the freezer. And I think it was a couple of days. And the thing, once it thawed out, started moving again. He's like, oh my God, it's still alive. If they're being, you know, in the freezer for days, like these things are hard to kill, but the heat will kill them, right? 
And yes. 10 minutes, a minimum 10 minutes in the dryer will kill ticks. But, you know, I have to, again, so so it's reusable, I'm, I'm imagining. So you can brush, you put it in the bag. If you're out, you come home. If you're in the yard, you come in, you throw it in the dryer with the bag sealed. So now you have the tick mitt with all the ticks on it in the sealable bag so the ticks can't get out. You throw it in the dryer for minimum 10 minutes, you pull it out. When you take the bag out, are all the dead ticks at the bottom of the bag? Like, what's that look like? And what do you shake it out and put them in the garbage? What do you do? They're still stuck to the mitt. So you could, you know, try shaking them out into a garbage. If you feel comfortable with dead bugs, you can pick them off yourself. You could use a tweezer um, and throw them away. Um, but yeah, they'll, they'll stay attached to the mitt when they're in the dryer. And then you can just reuse that mitt and reuse it yep. over and over and over again, right? You can yeah. use the mitt and over you can and wash over it again. and wash the mitt. I mean, if you're using it on your dog a lot, you're going to find that the mitt gets dirty because your dog's dirty. <laughs> so the, a lot of people listen to this podcast have sensitivities to chemicals, right? Some people are u- uber sensitive. They develop these chemical sensitivities from Lyme disease. And I know people are going to want to know what's on it. Is there a chemical that binds these ticks to the glove? Is it safe? Is it natural? What, you know, not to give us the secret, right? I don't want anything proprietary, but is it safe? Are there chemicals and what's what's used on it that could be potentially harmful to people? I think that our entire life, or at least mine, my family has been super health conscious. I think that's in part to, you know, have, have had having Lyme disease and my dad also being sick. We've been very careful about what foods we eat in our whole life. We try to use non-toxic chemicals as much as possible. And the fact that we were able to come up with a product that didn't need chemicals at all was just icing on the cake. So... What is, so, you know, I don't want to, is there anything else on the radar? So many questions, but I, I don't want to miss anything. So you talked about the tick glove coming next, right? What else is in the hopper? Cause you've only been in business for four months. You've sold, I mean, almost 10,000 units already this summer alone. When is the tick glove coming out and what else are you seeing for the future of TickMid? So our next stop is we're going to be on Good Morning America next week, which is very exciting. We have some upcoming partnerships with nonprofits and companies who are founded also by Lime Warriors that we're hoping to work with um, and just continuing to spread out TickMit, hopefully into some smaller retail stores, especially in the South over the winter, as we know that uh, tick season is there year round and it'll kind of cool off for a couple of months up here in the Northeast. Um, and hopefully working on a couple of new projects, um, to create premium versions of the tick mitt, to create other versions of the tick mitt that, uh, people are excited about, um, and that they can add into their tick mitt routine. Yeah. And we know I'm looking at your website right now and Wendy Phillips, who we love and we, promote her all the time from the, she's the executive director, I believe at the Lyme Treatment Foundation. You know, she's endorsing your product, which is really cool to see you so embedded in this community, right? Now you've met Ali, you've met us. So we need more products like this to help people. I mean, ticks are becoming more and more of a problem. To your point, they're a worldwide problem. You know, right now, let's, let's ask that question. I think you're only available for shipping within the continental US right now, right? Because we have yes. a lot of international listeners too. Yeah, we're doing our very best to get it in Canada as soon as possible. And then from there, going to see how we can get it to other places uh, in the world. Unfortunately, shipping is just very expensive. And we know that people who are going through Lyme disease are already dealing with a lot of high medical bills. So we're trying to find a way to do that efficiently and cost effectively. Um, But our next stop is definitely Canada. That's probably the place that we get the most inquiries about. And it's obviously closest to the United States. So uh, we'll be easiest to do on our, our first country out of the U.S. 
So I know a lot of people, not to get too much into the weeds about cost and shipping and all that kind of stuff, but you know, people, it sounds like a really great tool. People listen to me, oh, they must be charging a leg, you know, a leg and an arm for this, right? How much is, how much is it take me? I'm looking at your website. I mean, to me, it's really affordable and and Mm -hmm. I know you offer free shipping. Just tell us about how you're able to, you know, what the price is and, and why you decided to make it that economical for people, because I feel like it could be sold for a lot more. Not that I'm complaining, right? I think it's a great service you guys are offering to the community at that rate. Well, I think um, I think we really do care about the community uh, because of our own personal experience. Uh, we've had, um, as Olivia mentioned, I'm a serial entrepreneur. We've had a number of businesses. We've done pretty well in our life. There's no reason that we need to make this, make our all our money on this one product, especially one that we're bringing to market to really help people through our own experience. So it's very important to us. There is at a price point that everyone can you know, participate. Uh, so that's why it's at that price point. And I agree with you, it could be more, we, especially with the research and development we put into it. We it could take us a little longer to get that money back over time, but we're happy to jump in and do that with the community. Yeah, I mean, at $19.99 with free shipping, I mean, in today's economy, that's that's mm-hmm. that's a great deal, especially if, you know, never mind you, oh, Steve, you asked earlier, and I, I forgot to come back to this. Some estimates suggest that in, I think it was 2020, there were going to be over 2 million people suffering with chronic Lyme. That means debilitated, not, not acute Lyme, not people that are functioning, people that are debilitated from Lyme disease, over 2 million in the United States alone by 2020. And that was just an estimate, right? And then when you factor in about half a million people every year get infected with Lyme disease based on current CDC estimates, right? Almost 500,000 people a year. And you factor in how much money it costs somebody to be out of work. I mean, I was out of work for a year, forced to go back. You guys heard my story offline. Everybody listens to the podcast knows mm-hmm. my story. I mean, the way it impacted my life has just been so significant, right? So if this can help people not get sick like I was or prevent me from getting reinfected, I just feel like it's a no-brainer, right? And and that's why it's such a great service. We want to thank you. Ali and I want to thank you both, Steve and Olivia, for bringing this product to market, to doing the, the research it has to go into it. I mean, testing it with different fabrics out in the field with a real tick scientist, right? Figuring out the best fabric that's going to pick up these ticks the most you really put did your homework and you really put your heart and soul into this product. So we just want to thank you for that. And I do want to ask, I mean, how are you both feeling today? We'll start with you, Steve. I mean, you know, you had, you know, with the, with Lyme, thankfully it wasn't really bad. You caught it at the acute level within a few weeks and you treated and you, and you didn't really have any symptoms, but you did have another illness. So just tell us how, how, how are you feeling? You know, what are you doing? What's your life like today? And just, just give us some, uh, some background into who, you know, what's like, what's life like today? Uh, I feel pretty good, but um, I still have residual issues you know, from my disease, and uh, they're going to be chronic forever, uh, constantly working on different versions of what that, you know, what they did to me. And um, but all in all, I'm athletic, I'm happy, I'm healthy. I lost a lot of weight. I didn't, I'm never going to put that back on. My body's changed. You know, when you get chronic diseases, whether it's cancer or long-term Lyme's, I'm sure there are Lyme. I'm sure there are, you know, ways that your body changes. And uh, you just adjust to it. I don't. I don't. I don't walk around feeling sickly or acting sick. I just go on with my life. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I just want to say, Steve. I, I know this is a audio only podcast. I have to say this for our listeners. It is apparent the passion that you have. Looking at both of you, Olivia and Steve. As you're speaking, you're glowing, you're smiling. I mean, this is something you can just tell this is a passionate project for you that you're helping people. So I just I wanted to verbalize that because people can't see you. And you're you're both glowing as you're describing the product. So again, thank you for that. And 
Oh, go ahead. Did you want to say something, Steve? I do want to, yeah, I want to say that when we got into this, of course, it was based on our own experience, but we've really gotten closer and closer to the community. And the closer you get, the more important this feels, the more passion you have for it, the more you want to be involved in the community in these conversations, that we're able to bring something so simple in reality that can be so effective. It really, when you hear the stories, when you hear what's happening, when I hear about you and uh, being reinfected, which is a concern, and we're able to bring this really just ratchets up for us, you know, the the glow of yeah. being part of the community, being able to bring this to people, bringing it, bringing it at a price point that makes sense. And of course, doing it together, you know, that's also been important for us. Yeah, the, the family component is huge, right? Mm -hmm. So Olivia, how are you feeling? I mean, you're 24 years old. You are, and I hate to say this, but you look healthy, but we know just because you look healthy doesn't mean you are healthy, but you're glowing as well. How are you feeling? You know, give us an idea of how you're feeling today. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I I will say my knee has been acting up the last couple of days. I think I overdid it on the Peloton on Thursday. Um, so, you know, I'm just taking care of myself as best as I can, but I'm feeling just really happy to have been so invested in this community over the last few months. Um, I think going into college, I had the intention of, you know, eventually being an entrepreneur. I was always very interested in social entrepreneurship was, you know, creating a product to help other people. And I think that um, in a lot of academic communities, people kind of frown upon that, you know, they're like, go into finance, be a lawyer, be a doctor, social entrepreneurship really isn't a thing. Um, and I, you know, I, I kind of drank into that Kool-Aid for a little while and worked in corporate for a couple of years. And, you know, I, I just said, dad, I really want to do this. I really want to, you know, work on this product together. I really want to help people. I want to become uh, someone who has a better understanding of what I went through and what other people are going through and how to help those kinds of people. And, uh, like Steve was saying, you know, I, I get emails, I get phone calls regularly, not just from people who purchase tickets, but our friends, you know, asking for advice. And, you know, a year ago, if someone had said, what do I do if I get a tick-borne disease, I probably wouldn't have as many resources on the top of my head as I do now. And I feel really grateful that I'm able to provide that to people. Allie, do you have any final questions I, before we go into their contact information? I know I've been dominating again. So I just want to make sure that you got all your questions in. No, I was just going to say it's it's apparent that it's um, very mission driven for both of you, which I know really, really resonates with the community as it does with me. And, um, you know, we need more people like you in the world. That's That's really all I can say. So. Agreed. And, and I wanted to share, if anybody listening wants to go check out the TickMit website, it's tick-mit, so that's T-I-C-K-M-I-T-T.com. And I believe you're all your social media, you're on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram, and your handle for all three is tick.mit, T-I-C-K.M-I-T-T. Is that correct? Yes. And is there any other information, Olivia or Steve, you want to share before we conclude? Any contact information, any concluding thoughts? I mean, again, from Allie and I just want to thank you for everything you share with us today. We're huge fans and huge advocates of yours. We just want to make sure that you guys are able to convey everything you wanted to to our audience today. Yeah, if you want to reach out to us, you can contact us at contact at tick-mit.com. Well, Steve, Olivia, Allie, thank you all so much for joining the Tick Boot Kim podcast. I learned so much. I'm going to go check out your website, buy one right now. And I think this is a product everybody should integrate into their daily tick check routine. I think this complements it very well. 
I think, as you noticed, Steve, everybody should continue to do with their hands, take checks as well, use this product. Mm -hmm. And if they do, they're going to help ensure, well, help reduce the odds of being bit by a tick and help reduce the odds of a reinfection or infection by tick-borne illness, which is so prevalent in today's world. So again, thank you all for joining our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Bye, guys.